Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of a Brothers Creed podcast where we talk about motivation, experiences, and we explore the world around us. Today, we have a great episode. I'm Jared. I'm Ethan. And today, we talk with a guy named Cody McFall. He is so interesting. Him and his family uh, live in Kyrgyzstan, which is basically on the other side of the world from us, uh, right butts up to China. And he runs an orphanage there with his parents and his wife. And... uh, he just tells some great stories about, uh, first of all, we talk about preparedness and, and being uh, physically prepared, uh, mentally prepared, and, and getting up your skills up to par to be able to survive in a situation or just adapt to what's going on around you. Uh, he gives some good tips and tricks uh, about that and what to look out for. He also talks about surviving in a third world country and what he needs to watch out for and what he does to be prepared at all times. He talks about a situation where his dad actually got in a a really bad accident and how he responded to that. That was really interesting. Uh, Overall, very interesting. He goes into a little bit of to the orphanage and how they got started with that and, and and how they come, how some of these kids enter the orphanage. Uh, Great work that he's doing there and really excited uh, to have talked to him. So uh, let's go ahead and dive into this episode. All right, let's do it. You can't climb the ladder of success with your hands in the pocket. We will not go quietly into the night. They tell me you're a man with true grit. I am the one who knocks. Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever! That's how winning is done. Okay, Cody. Thank you for uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. We we appreciate it, especially uh, you being all, all the way across the world. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. It's it's eight thirty p.m. here. What, what time is it where you are? It is seven thirty a.m. here. Oh, okay. Tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow. Like, welcome to the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if we dig a hole directly under us, we'll come up right where you're at. <laughs> Actually, yes, about roughly like that, you know. It's almost like almost identical across the globe. That must be a really long flight. How do you get how do you what flights do you take to get there? Um there's actually well, there's leaving, leaving from the states you can take. Um we usually fly through Istanbul because it's simply it's less stops, you know, less uh-huh. layovers. And so it's about like a 13-hour or so flight, like let's say from like Houston to Istanbul. And then it's about like six hours from there to Kyrgyzstan. So all in all, with layovers, it's almost like twenty-four hours. Wow, yeah, that's a long flight. I, I, when I, I went to South America, it was um, it was eighteen hours to uh, it was eighteen hours to from we flew from New York to uh, Southern Chile, and then we had to go back up to Northern Chile. And yeah, it's that's a long time on a plane for sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Well, uh, we, you know, we we, we want to talk about your, uh, you know, why you're in uh, Kyrgyzstan uh, later in the call and, and about what your work is there. But uh, we want to first talk about some of the uh, preparedness. So I know you have a your Instagram page is uh, fit to survive. What can you tell us about that? What uh, I like your logo, by the way. Uh, tell, tell us about that. Tell us about your Instagram page. So fit to, fit to Survive, it's kind of a, a goal in my life. Um, I, want to, I want to be both physically and mentally prepared for, you know, for anything, you know, for whatever you know, life brings my way. Um, and it's, I guess the reason why I chose that is it's, it's, a, it's a hybrid, it's a combination of different styles. Um, you know, a lot of times people think of preppers, and which I don't really classify myself as a prepper. Um, you know, preppers are really, they're, they're like hoarders, you know, they just have like, you know, maybe a bunch of food, you know, a bunch of water and stuff, you know, but I want to not just be prepared for, you know, a lot of these people are thinking of the end of the world or something like that. Um, I'm prepared for the end of the world in a different kind of way. (laughs) Um, you guys know what I mean, right? Yeah, exactly. Getting right, getting right with the big man upstairs, right? (laughs) Yeah, I read the last chapter. I know how it ends, and I'm prepared. <laughs> Anyways, but, you know, I want to not just be like, like, like I said, like a prepper who, you know, has hordes of food. Um, instead, I want to be um, ready to adapt, you know, or be able to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like improvise with what I have. And 
you know, it's kind of like the old, there's an old proverb talking about, you know, if you give a man a fish and you feed him one day, you know, if you, if you teach him to fish, you know, you fed him for the rest of his life. And it's kind of the same thing. And so, you know, kind of my, my thoughts that I had to be fit to survive is to be able to not just survive because you have, you know, a bunker with a year's worth of food, but because you're actually, you have, you know, skill, you have knowledge, you have the gear that you, you practice with. And you're actually, because of that, you know, that makes you fit to survive. Um, yeah. I think a huge portion of that is um, education and, and knowing oh, yeah. that, uh, you know, what to do when a situation happens. You can have, like you said, in, a nice bunker and a year's worth of supplies, mm-hmm. but if, if you don't know what to do with it or if you can't fend for yourself in other ways, then, you know, what, what good is that? Exactly. Exactly. And a large thing that a lot of people are missing out on is actually like the fitness part of surviving because, um, and again, you know, so many people, they relate to, you know, being prepared or, you know, survival with, you know, the modern thing moving around is, you know, uh, zombie, zombie apocalypse, you know, or the end of the world kind of thing. And, you know, sure. That's, you know, I don't know, I guess it gets what the media or, you know, you know, gets people hyped, but in reality, um, you know, survival can come, you know, you may need to survive just because you're stuck in, you know, a, a bad traffic jam, you know, somebody may come up like that. Or, you know, what if your car stalls in the middle of nowhere? In the middle of a snowstorm or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, you know, say like it's winter right now, you know, it's, it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And, you know, if you're traveling out in the middle of nowhere and your car stalls, um, you know, are you, are you ready? You know, are you going to be able to, you know, do something about that? What does your bunker back home with, you know, with a year's worth of food do for you when you're out in the middle of a field, you know, and it's freezing cold, you know? Yeah. And so that, that, that's kind of my, the concept I had of, you know, being fit to survive. And so it's, a, like I said, a hybrid of actually, um, you know, fitness, you know, being able to run, being able to, you know, take the physical requirements, you know, that are needed to survive. Um, and like um, you said also about actually the knowledge um, being prepared as in with skills that you've learned, that you've honed. Um, and another thing I've added to like my bucket list of being prepared to survive, you know, fit to survive is actually, um, self-defense. Um, and so I had taken before, um, so I'd studied some karate and I really enjoyed it. Um, but you know, the strange thing about a lot of self-defense, um, styles is there are rules. You know, there's competition, there's rules, you know, there's no eye jabbing, there's no like that. But in reality, you know, when you're trying to survive, you know, there is, there are no rules. You know, if it's you, you and your family, you know, and you're trying to protect them against, you know, a guy who's come in to, you know, do whatever he plans to do with your family, you should be able to do, you should be ready to do whatever you have to do. Anything, anything goes. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's all, you know, all fair. And so, so what type of uh, martial arts did you adopt? Uh, what's the secret kind that covers all scenarios? <laughs> so I chose to start studying Krav Maga. It's the Israeli, the Israeli um, yeah. style. Uh, I believe it's what the IDF that uses it. Um, and what I like about it is, you know, there are no rules. You know, a lot of people who are skeptics of Krav Maga say, ah, you know, it's just dirty fighting. You know, you can learn to do that, you know, around, you know, in an alley. Um, that's exactly that's exactly when you need it is whenever you're in an alley. Yes, yes, exactly. And so that was that was you know so with fit to survive with that concept it's it's an ever changing you know there's new things that I find that it's like hey I need to learn to do that you know and so like Krav Maga you know I've only, I've only taken about about a year and a half of it I think um, and then you know COVID had its its plans and so that's been canceled. Were well, you doing that? Grappling. You were taking that there in Kyrgyzstan, is that right? Yes, yes. I started taking it here. Um, I found a man that was teaching it. He had studied in Russia. And um, so, yeah, actually, I, I've been taking it here. And you know, like So a Russian-style Krav Maga, that's like, you know, you push someone back and you pull out like a 9 millimeter, just shoot him in the chest. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way the Russians do it. You know, that's another thing that has required me to uh, adapt is in Kyrgyzstan, I can't have a firearm. Um, local citizens, they can have um, like some hunting weapons, but that's actually, it's quite complicated to get permission. 
um, but like an actual like firearm, um, it's 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 difficult to obtain. You just have a reason, you know, you know, I don't know, you're working in a bank or you know, you're you're carrying money, you know. And so I don't have that freedom here that I have in the States, you know, you know, to be able to carry a firearm to protect my family. Um, you know, a firearm, it really, it, it levels the ground, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you can totally. be, you know, a woman, you don't have to be strong, but if you have a firearm, you, it kind of levels the ground between you and an assailant. Yep, totally. And so being Kurdistan, you know, I had to adapt to that, you know, um, not, there's not the option of a firearm. And so you have to have non-lethal ways, you know, and I really enjoyed that in Krav Maga because, you know, we practice with, um, you know, different scenarios. You know, hey, what happens if somebody comes up behind you and they start choking you? You know, what happens if, you know, somebody walks up and they get a knife pointing to you? Um, and so, you know, whereas, like I said, you know, with karate, which I had taken before, there were no scenarios. You know, it was, you know, hey, you know, let's spar. You know, let's say you get in a ring, there's rules, you know, there's, you couldn't even punch to the face in, in karate. Um, and so, you know, it really it limits, limits you and it creates muscle memory that, um, actually in the future would make it difficult to protect yourself. Whereas, you know, Krav Maga is like, Hey, you know, this is a scenario. You know, what happens if, and so on. Have you had to use any of that training, uh, where you're at or, or any time in your life, I guess. I've been very fortunate. Um, I have not had to protect my life. Um, you know, I've not had to use, you know, any kind of force like that. I've not gotten to any fights. Um, That's I remember one morning, um, the boys from our orphanage came to me and they was like, there's a man in our property. They had gotten up early in the morning to go milk the cow. And so I run over there and I was already, you know, I had adrenaline pumping and stuff. I'm like, Oh, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is really, this is about to happen. You know, a person on our property, you know, this, you know, and so I get over there and he was a drunk, you know, he was confused. He was like, <laughs> what? This isn't my house. I'm like, no, this isn't your house. You know, come on. Let's well, get out of here. <laughs> If the worst you have to deal with is a drunk every now and then, you're, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we've talked about some different, um, I guess, levels of preparedness, whether it's uh, you know education or you know knowledge or fitness, physical fitness, mental fitness. Um, what are some things that you potentially have as far as um, if you had to, I don't know, bug out of a situation or in the in the instance where you were driving in your car and you got stuck somewhere, you stalled somewhere and you had to survive. Do you carry something with you, some kind of bag or uh, equipment that you have potential to use? Mm-hmm. Um, it's commonly referred to as EDC, everyday carry. And so then you basically, you put EDC to, you know, it can be an EDC flashlight, an EDC pouch, uh, different things like that. And so anytime I leave our property, I have like an EDC pouch on my, on my belt that I carry. And it has just some basics for, you know, again, whenever I say survival, it's, I'm not expecting to have to, you know, necessarily, you know, live in the woods. It may be survival because I have a pair of, you know, pliers that, you know, um, I can use to fix the vehicle. You know, if something happens, you know, this and that, it's actually, you know, you can change the size and, you know, whatever, you know, need to do with it. And so, my EDC pouch is kind of like constantly evolving. And so, you know, there's times when I'm like, oh, wow, I really wish I had a, you know, whatever in here. And then so I'll, I'll change the pouch to actually, you know, fit my needs. Um, but, you know, it's also, it's important to not just have like a small pouch. Um, you know, generally, even in Kyrgyzstan, and I know even more so America, whenever we leave our home, we're usually, we're in our vehicle. And yep. so, you know, if you want to call your everyday drive, you know, vehicle, <laughs> Um, and so I actually, in, in my vehicle, I have in the pass, uh, I'm sorry, not passenger in the driver door, I have a slightly larger pack with some more serious equipment because like, you know, even with a small pouch that I carry on my side, you know, sometimes I get looks like, you know, what's that, you know, or, you know, you'll always have the skeptic to like, you know, do you seriously have to carry that with you? And you know, it's like, uh, you know, yeah. why you have to carry that? You're like, I'm ready and you're not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know, I know some people who literally, they carry a backpack with them everywhere. And it's like, I'm, I'm not ready to, you know, walk around everywhere with a backpack, you know? Yeah, and then totally. in, like in Kyrgyzstan, you know, people get suspicious, you know, so you're walking around with this backpack, like, Hey, you know, 
you know, let's see what's in your backpack, you know, like maybe a security guard or the police. And you open it up and you got like, you know, a machete in there and all that kind of stuff. They're going to be like, dude, you know, what's wrong with you, you know? Yeah, you're like, well, I was planning on robbing this bank and then heading for the hills for a month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I literally had been stopped before and they're like, what's that in your pocket? You can see the clip. I have a Leatherman um, charge in my pocket. And so it's a small, small it's a you know, medium-sized multi-tool. And they're like, you know, is that a cold weapon? And it's like, really? No, it's not a cold weapon. Now pull it out. And I'll, I'll open up to pliers. And I'm like, it's pliers, you know? you know? I'm not going to be like, you know, yanking people's teeth out. Um, but you know, that, yeah. that's another thing that I have to be, you know, you know, aware of here is what I do carry can actually may end up causing me trouble, you know? And so I have to also have to adapt to that. But then also in the back of my vehicle, um, I drive a Subaru Outback. And so like in the trunk section, um, you can lift up and there's your spare tire and above your spare tire, there's a compartment where you can store items. And so in that compartment, I actually prepared what a lot of people refer to as a bug out bag. And that, that means where it's something happens, you don't have time to you know, go through your house and gather up, hey, I need this, this, and this. It's, you know what, it's bad, we have to leave now. And so mine is already located in my vehicle. And so we are able to just get in the vehicle, take off, you know, whichever way we have to go. If we're trying to avoid people, you know, government, we could go towards the mountains. Um, you know, or if we're trying to get out of the country, we head towards the, the airport or whatever. But in there, I have everything I need for, for it. I have food stored in there. I have um, water in there. Um, I have, it's like the, what do they call it? The space, space grade, uh, not space grade. Anyways, the space blanket or something. Emergency blankets. Yeah. yeah. And, um, because, you know, example, like in that way, with it being cold, if the vehicle does stall and we're in the middle of nowhere and I can't fix it, you know? Hey, we have these aluminum blankets that you know we can get out there. We can stay warm until maybe we can have somebody come and help us. Yeah. And and so again, there's always it's it's always changing. Um, I'm always thinking of new things that I should add that I need to add, like you know spare socks, you know uh, a change of clothes. Because if again, if I'm out and I get wet, you know, and again right now so it's winter, and so if I get wet and that's cold, I'm actually able to open up that section of my vehicle and I, I, I'm changing clothes. So I get changed, I can get dry, I can get warm again. I mean, it's especially when you have kids, like in my van, I have like a little compartment where we have extra water bottles, blankets, a change of clothes for the boys because yeah, especially babies, like it's almost like we use our, like one time when we were, had less kids, we are just about to have our fourth kid. Uh, we, uh, my wife was like, oh, we have to put everything in the diaper bag. And I was like, why do we have to put everything in the diaper bag? And I was like, why don't we use the car as like our mothership? And then like the diaper bag, it just is like our little baby ship, you know? And so like yeah, there it, you go. just have one diaper and then like wipes in your, in, your, in your baby ship, in your diaper bag. And then like if the baby like has a total blowout or something like that and he needs a change of clothes, just go back to the mothership and get those materials because like it, there's nowhere you're going to be that you're that far away from a car. I mean, even if you're like in the middle of church and the baby does that, you're going to take the baby out anyway. Just walk out to the parking exactly. lot and take care of it, you know? So Exactly. And that that's an awesome, that's an awesome concept. And it's kind of what I'm trying to get to is that um, I don't want to have to carry all of my gear on my person. Um, you know, walk around with a backpack all the time or with a giant pouch or with my pocket bulging. Um, I want to be able to, like you said, you know, have the mothership where you, you return to. And from there, you can actually, you take out what you need. And so like, you know, a, a collapsible stove, you know, some propane and stuff. So actually you can make a hot meal. Um, I recently added coffee. And so I was given a uh, AeroPress. And so, oh, you know, really? now, you know, if we're out uh, in, you know, somewhere, even again, it doesn't have to be like the end of the world scenario. It may just be, hey, they're, they're changing the oil on the vehicle and, you know, it's really cold. You know, let's let's go make some coffee, kind of thing. Or maybe like you're uh, you're out on an overlook with your wife, and you're like, "Hey, baby, I've got some uh, some some cup of Joe here for us." And she's like, "Oh, yeah, you're exactly. so prepared." And you're like, "Yes, I am." Yeah. So, so Cody, you know, in the United States, I feel like uh, preparedness, whether it's you know really hardcore prepping or just survival, I mean, it's it's kind of a hot topic. There's a lot of people that um, you know are participating in in wanting to be more prepared. In the United States, have you seen in your your time abroad and 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 um, 
living where you are that people have a similar mentality in other countries? Um, do, do they have this mentality of, of preparedness and things like that? And self-reliance? Um, okay, so it's not as developed. Um, Kyrgyzstan is considered a third world country. And so a lot of people, they, you know, if you want to refer to it as prepping, you know, they prepare for more, I don't know, more serious things like winter. You know, for them, winter is, is you know, a much more difficult time. Um, they'll be spending summer canning, you know, vegetables, you know, canning, you know, pickles and preparing for things like that, buying potatoes when they're cheap and storing them. And so, you know, people, they do have, you know, they, they, they do prepare like, like that for winter and for the seasons and, um, but not, not in the style of like survival as like, like what it's really known as in the States. Um, their, their life is like a constant prep. I mean, they live for... You know, they're chopping firewood during the summer so that they have it for the winter. I mean, it's, it's, it's like cyclical living. Yes, yes, you're exactly right. And sometimes uh, people really don't understand, you know, when they see, like, I'm carrying a pouch and I have, you know, this, like, you know, some really basic survival gear in there. And it's like, why? You know, what do you, you think is going to happen? And, you know, and I've noticed in many foreign countries that I've been in, people, they, they do depend on the government. You know, that's, that's something that in America we try not to have to do. Uh, we want to be able to fend for ourselves and not let the government say, okay, yeah, you know, we got this covered for you. Because if you're dependent on the government, the government controls you. Exactly. You're exactly right. That's exactly right. And so for, for me, like in Kyrgyzstan, um, there's always, this is something I've tried to explain to the kids, to the children in the orphanage. <clears throat> it's a... The possibility of like um, ratios it's like okay so if if a child wants to travel to the capital city you know for for whatever reason be it you know education or for something else and I tell them it's okay you know if there's a hundred thousand people traveling you're one person out of a hundred thousand people right what are the chances of something happening to you it's, it's fairly fairly small right it, you know, it's one out of a hundred thousand um, whereas let's say <clears throat> This is an example, you know, not that this has actually happened. Let's say one of our young ladies is like, oh, I want, I want, to, I want to you know, catch a bus into the capital city, and it's like 10 p.m. and dark. And it's like, okay, so now how many, you know, young ladies are there traveling to the capital city at this time of night by themselves? There may be, I don't know, five, seven, ten, you know, let's be nice and say 100. And now, now what are the chances that she, something happens to her, you know, somebody, you know, tries to kidnap her or harm her? Well, now it's, you know, depending on the amount of people we're imagining is traveling to this, the capital city, it can be one out of five. You got a 20% chance of somebody saying, hey, you, you know, you're a cute girl, you know, and whatever happening you know, after that. Um, yeah, you, you increased your ratio. Exactly, exactly. And so I try to explain this to them. So, and uh, something that they have to kind of deal with is people know that they are children from an American orphanage. And, you know, everybody knows that, you know, Americans, we have like, you know, money coming out of our pockets and, you know, just flowing out so our much money. And, yeah. and so that actually, that, that, that already puts them like farther out there as far as for danger, even though they're a local, um, that's something that they have to constantly be aware of. And for me as being an American, you know, I'm always in the one, one ratio. You know, if a terrorist is like, Hmm, you know, I, I want to, you know, kidnap somebody and get some money. Is he going to go for, you know, the, the old um, neighbor lady or is he going to go for the, you know, the American? And so my, my ratio of danger is always higher simply because I'm, I'm a foreigner, you know, and I've been here long enough. People know, hey, look, you know, there's an American. And so situational awareness, you know, you get to be constant, constantly aware of, you know, what's happening around you. Um, yeah, totally. I constantly, whenever I'm outside, I'm crossing the street because I live like I live right across from the orphanage. And so when I'm crossing the street to head towards the orphanage, if there's a car parked like next to us, like I'll take out my cell phone and like I'll just kind of discreetly take a picture of him, you know. Um, just <laughs> yeah. constantly trying to, you know, be aware of, you know, if it's the same guy constantly parked there, I'm yeah. gonna be like, you know, something something's going on here. Scoping out the place or something. It, yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I said that for me, like a bug out, a bug out bag or a survival kit, it may actually be much more realistic 
I may actually have to, you know, use this and actually have to, you know, hide, you know, or find, find a place to, to go to because the, the government of Kyrgyzstan, they, they will side with the country that pays them most. Basically. Um, they don't, they're not, they're not rich. By that should be America or well, I guess China is, and Russia are both big spenders. And <laughs> so it depends. Yeah. It's yeah, usually, that, it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that that was kind of one question that I was going to ask is, you know, f- from you being over there and, and, and connected, I mean, you have internet, obviously, um, and you're you're seeing kind of everything that's been going on in the United States for the past six months. Um, how have how have you perceived that there? And, you know, the next question as a follow up to that is, is how has the, 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 the government in Kyrgyzstan really reacted to it as well? Um. So the people here, <clears throat> they, they, they're, they're very much, they listen to whatever the news tells them. You know, it's a lot of, you know, if the news says, you know, America is this, you know, then America apparently is that, you know, because everybody knows the news doesn't lie. Um, and so they, they go back and forth. Um, in general, um, when people find out that I'm an American, they, they're usually happy to meet me. Um, they're, they're cordial. Um, Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who's like, I'm like, you know, they find out I'm an American and they're like, oh, America's bad. You know, you people are, you know, you're, you're pigs, you know, you get into other people's business and they start, they start almost like re- rebuking me for American, um, politics. Yeah. Politics, literally. And it's like, you know, I'm an American, but I had nothing to do with that, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. And yeah, I remember, you know, there's been some times when like, you know, Trump, he, he, uh, refused to let um people from certain muslim countries come to america because they were there's a high risk of them being terrorists and they're telling me it's like you know why are you guys doing this and they started like almost like rebuking me and it's like you know i don't know you know i, I had didn't, nothing I to didn't do with that, that <laughs> was kyrgyzstan on that list um yes actually it is kyrgyzstan got on that list um but not so much for terrorism as much as for fraudulent passports they said that until they get a grip on uh, their passports and you know the amount of people who are actually using fake documents, that there there's a there was a travel ban that was that was placed on that. Interesting. Yeah, I experienced the same thing when I was in Mexico. I mean, Mexico is very close to the U.S. and so you know you get these people that would be like they had back in that time it was like that was 2007 2008. Uh, they were like there was a three strike rule and it was like if you get arrested three times and uh, just deport you back to Mexico. And so we'd be walking along the street, and then someone would be like, "Hey!" And, and they start speaking English to us, to us, and I'm like, "Yeah, I can finally speak English." So I, I'd start speaking English with this guy, and then or, or whoever it was, and and they'd be like, "Hey, you know, Bush kicked me out of your country, but I, I was living in you know wherever." And they would always they always love to speak English, and then they would be like, "Oh, say hi to Bush for me," and they and they'd trash on Bush or trash on America, and I'm like, "I don't represent America right now." <laughs> yeah. I, I'm talking about the our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you want to hear more? And they're like, No, 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 no. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind exactly. of fun. Yeah, I've actually I've had people say something similar to that, like, Oh, you know, George Bush, you know, tell him I said hi. <clears throat> or especially if they find out I was, you know, I was born in Texas. Yeah. Like, oh, Texas, George Bush, you know, is he your neighbor? It's like, no, he's not my neighbor. Oh, Dixie Chicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit, I know you said, you, you know, you're born in Texas. Maybe tell us a little bit about, um, your, uh, where you're from and then what, what took you to, to Kyrgyzstan and, and, and how you ended up there and kind of that story. Absolutely. So when I was young, um, my, my father was already in the air force. Um, I believe I was, if I remember correctly from the stories, I believe I was a year and a half, um, my father, he was deployed to Japan. And so my mother, uh, she took um, me, my, my brother, and my older sister. The three of uh, the, the four of us, we followed him to Japan. And we lived there for three years. And so from Japan, he would deploy to different locations. Um, so anyway, so the start of my, from the start of my life, we already were living out of the U.S. And we lived in Japan while he was in the Air Force. And so then we came back and... Um, he accepted the, the call to be a, a preacher, to be a missionary. And so, you know, we really didn't, didn't, I believe that was when I was five, if I'm not mistaken, um, roughly that age, I was about five years old. 
And so we began, you know, traveling around, um, you know, he went to Bible college and then we, we went around on deputation. And so we traveled across the States. And then in 1997, um, we, we moved to uh, Uzbekistan. That was where we went to originally. And so we spent seven years in Uzbekistan. Um, and then after that, we actually, we ended up running into trouble uh, in Uzbekistan and it was related to the government. Um, and so we actually, we had to flee the country. Um, I believe we had like two or three days or so. We, we packed up real quick, everything we had, everything we could bring, uh, or we had space to, uh, to take. And we, we had actually had to leave the country. Did it have to do with you guys being, uh, you know, Christians? Was that the, the impetus for the having to leave? It did. Yes. Um, basically we had, you could almost say like a Judas amongst us, um, like a betrayal. Um, yeah. where somebody had made a deal where, Hey, I'll turn in them and, you know, and you know, you let us go kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and so we did, we had to, we had to leave the country. Um, and we went back to the States, um, for about, two, about two years, we were back in the States. And when I was 17, we moved back to Kyrgyzstan and I've been here for, well, I'm, I'm 31 years old now. And so I've been here for like 13 and a half, you know, 14 years now I've been here in Kyrgyzstan. And so, you know, most of my life, you know, I feel like I'm more of a foreigner than I'm an American. You know, I spent you know, three <laughs> years in Japan, seven yeah. years in in Uzbekistan, and then I've been 14 years year, here in Kyrgyzstan. And that's like 24 years of my life. And I'm 31, so I've been in the States like like seven years, you know, you combine it together. And so, you know, there, there were several times where I felt like I was a foreigner. Um, I remember one of the times when we went back to the States when I was, I don't know, I must have been pre-teens. Um, we went back to the States, was visiting family and stuff. And they took us to a Chinese buffet. And, you know, once we were done cushion, uh, cooking, uh, they brought us those the fortune cookies. And so I'm like, oh, cool, you know, cookies. And so I, I ripped it open and I took a bite out of it. And I'm like, I whispered to my mom, like, hey, there's paper in my cookie. <laughs> and, you know, she starts laughing and she's telling everybody, you know, like, haha, you know, he, he said he has paper in his cookie. And I'm like, you know, I was trying to be, you know, discreet about it, not, you know, trying to be, you know, like, you know, a nasty childhood. Yeah, you know, how could they, you know, they, they left paper. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was just laughing, you know, and everybody was laughing. And I'm like, what's so funny? You know, I have this paper in it, you know? And, you know, there's something I just didn't know that, you know? Yeah, that's funny. Like, something's wrong with these cookies, man. Like, there's paper in mine. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's just because I'd spent, you know, most of my, my life overseas. And so I never had eaten a fortune cookie. And so biting into it is like, rip. It's like, you know, so this isn't normal. Yeah. And so that's happened several times where, you know, I when I go back to the States and it's like, wow, I, I really feel like a foreigner. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, so you're married though. So how did you meet your wife? That, that was a question I had. Okay. Um, actually, I, I guess I should continue with, you know, kind of a story of how I ended up here. And so yeah. um, I kind of got distracted with the whole fortune cookie. And so... We moved to Kyrgyzstan, and we were actually here as English teachers. You know, that was that was our reason for being here. And while we were teaching English, um, my dad ran into a person who was the, I guess you say, the director or the owner of an orphanage. And you know, they they, they spoke a little bit, um, and my dad offered to to do like basically Christmas for them. And so we we actually that's the first time we came out and we visited the orphanage. It's in a village. It's about a thirty minute drive from the capital city. And so we actually, we went out and um, we visited the, the orphanage for the first time. And then, you know, that's how we found out about the orphanage. And he told us that he, he planned to move back to America because um, to get his citizenship for his wife. And so, you know, he'd asked if we could, we could take over the orphanage. And so it was actually there at the orphanage where I met my wife. And so we've been married for five years now, but no, no children yet. So was she an orphan at the orphanage? She was one of the graduates. Okay. One, so one of the... She's, she's one who she actually, she, she'd been in the orphanage. Um, she is not actually an orphan. Um, she was placed in the orphanage because her mother didn't, could not financially support her and her brother. Okay. And so she had to give them up um, basically so they, they could, you know, basically it was a financial uh, burden on her. Um, she couldn't feed them. She couldn't put them in school and things like that. And so she actually has a mother. And so now you guys work, obviously, uh, you, your parents are still there and you and your wife 
work at the orphanage with, with the children as well? And, and kind of what's the situation there? That is correct. Yes, we, we stayed on. We work with the orphanage. Uh, my wife, she actually helps out. Um, she does a lot of the cooking. Um, she, whatever, basically, we step in and we do whatever that needs to be filled, whatever needs to be done. Um, my father actually and my mother, they have not been here for about a year now. Um, really? So it's just you two guys man the house. Yeah. And so, um, the, let's see, it must have been the, the 31st of May, if I'm not mistaken, 2019. Um, my dad was in an accident. He was actually, he was riding a motorcycle and he went into a turn and there was a, a large, um, like dump truck that was heading in his lane at him. Oh, wow. And so he, he tried to um, avoid him, try to go around him. Um, and they ended up, they hit head on. And so he was on a motorcycle and he hit head on into a, uh, a dump truck and um, it shattered his femur. And so like right above his knee, just absolutely shattered his femur. Um, I, he, he was, in, he was really in, in a bad shape. Um, I'm surprised that's all that happened. I mean, get hit by a dump truck on a motorcycle. I mean, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really, you don't know what you want to do. Um, so, so he came, he had on the helmet and he had on like some gear. Um, he didn't have on any, like any like armored pants. Um, but his, his jacket was, it was like a motorcycle jacket and he had on the helmet and gloves and stuff. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that you, you, you can try to be prepared for, but you never are prepared for. Um, yeah. I had taken a, a first, a first, what's it called red cross first aid course, CPR, AED. Um, what else goes with that? Basically first aid, CPR and AED. And I have a medical kit that I carry a trauma kit that I keep in my car. Um, I have a, it's basically, it's, it's a fishing, a tackle box that I've, you know, I've changed to be my medical kit for home. Um, but anyways, so we got a phone call from my dad and he's like, I need you guys to come pick me up. I've been in an accident. And so immediately, you know, we jumped in the vehicle and that's the good thing about being prepared. I didn't need to go run and get our medical supplies. I had my trauma kit with me in the vehicle. And so I, I jumped, we jumped in the vehicle and we went out um, to go find him. And I, he was really, really bad. Um, his neck was hurting. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what happened to him, how bad it was. Yeah. Um, and so what basically I got on the scene, um, the, the driver of the, of the dump truck had picked him up and had dragged him off the road and put him on like a, a hump of dirt. And it's like, don't you know, that's, a, that's the one thing you don't do. It's like, don't move him. And, you know, he didn't yeah. like support his head or hold his neck and move him. No, he just kind of just dragged him over there. And um, the whole time my dad was like, don't touch me. Don't move me. Don't touch me. And so, so as I got there and it's one of those moments when no matter how prepared I thought I was, I really, I wasn't prepared. Um, I opened up my, my medical kit and it's like, what do I do? You know, his, his complaint about his leg. Um, he, he said he thought his knee was shattered. And I mean, honestly, I had nothing in my kit to do for, you know, a shattered, you know, femur. Um, I have like, it's called a, a Sam splint where it's like it's aluminum and it has like some foam on it. And actually you can, you can uh, form it to be like a splint for your arm, for your neck or whatever. And honestly, I mean, for his leg, you know, it, I had nothing I could do for it. And yeah. anytime you, you touched his leg, you know, we couldn't, it was causing extreme pain. Are there ambulances there or is it like you're on your own kind of thing? Uh, there are ambulances here. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's literally these, these things have happened where you call for an ambulance and like, sorry, we don't have gasoline. You know, we don't have any gas in our, our ambulances. And so, but that, that Man. has. Is that, that a representation? A, is that a representation of what the hospital is like too? Yes. Yes, that is. Um, and so there's actually, there's private ambulances that you can, you can call and pay for. Um, basically here, uh, you, you need, that's another thing you got to carry with me is cash. You need cash because money and acquaintances, they, they can, they can get everything for you here. Um, and so we called for a private ambulance. They took him to the local hospital, which that is one thing we completely avoid. The, the local hospitals, especially in our village, they are so archaic. I mean, it's like, like, it's 1950s like going to the 1950s style. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it's like going to the Soviet Union minimum. for medical treatment. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. 
And so they, they took him to the, to the local hospital here because honestly he had to. They, we uh, we uh, discussed the option of taking him to uh, Bishkek, the capital city, for medical treatment. And they said there's a chance he can't make it because um, when, we, when they went to put him up onto a stretcher, his right leg, okay, so the, the, the upper part of it, like, like where his thigh is, it didn't move. But the, like from his knee and down, it just fell to the side. Oh, there, there, was, there was no skeletal structure to his, to his leg. And so the, the bottom part of his leg was like free floating per se from the top part of his leg. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so they said if there are bone, what do they call it? Like, I guess like splinters. They said it can puncture his femoral artery. And yeah. he said he will die. And the roads in Kyrgyzstan are awful. And so it's almost like, you know, putting him on a rodeo and saying, okay, you know, where do you want to go? You want to drive 40 minutes to the capital? Yeah. Or you want to take him, you know, 10 minutes to our local hospital. And so we, we actually chose to go to the local hospital. And again, you know, the medical treatment, it's just, it's so terrible. Um, they, they, I was trying to explain to them, you can't move him the way you're trying to move him. They, they want to, you know, they usually pick up a person by his ankles and by his, like, you know, one person holds his ankles, another person will grab him under his armpits and they'll pick you up. They, they wanted to pick him up like that. I'm like, no, oh you gosh. can't. I'm like, stop. And finally, <laughs> they were ignoring me like I was just a paranoid, you know, family, you know, relative. I finally got in their faces like, listen, I said, you cannot pick him up like that. You're not going to touch him. And he kind of gave me a look kind of like, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? And then somebody elbowed him like, he's an American. And he's like, ah, you know. I am trained professional here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, after they found out I was American, they actually let me kind of control the situation a bit more. And they listened to me and I told them that his leg was, was shattered and stuff. And so anyways, it, it's actually quite a long story. Um, so did they come back to the, to, did they come back to the United States to, to get things fixed better or? We ended up medevacking him to Turkey, Istanbul. And that's where they, they did uh, surgery on him. Um, and so actually they've been spending um, a lot of time now in Turkey because of medical. And once COVID happened, Kyrgyzstan closes borders to Americans because America has a high rate of infection. And so they ended up not being able to return back to Kyrgyzstan. And so even though they're ready to come back, um, even medically, you know, he's, he's a bit more stable now. Um, they're not able to now. The borders are closed to them. Yeah. And so they, they have flown back to America now, and they're, they're waiting out in America. Wow. So all this sounds like it pretty ha- happened pretty quickly at this emergency situation. All this happened. And then I'm sure your mom was like, I'm going with dad. And then you're like, mm-hmm. I'll man the fort here with your wife because you and your wife are the adults there. Do you guys have any help? I mean, I think you. we talked earlier, you said you have 13 kids that you have at the orphanage there. So is it just you two? Yeah, we have 11 children that are actually still in the orphanage. And we have some of the graduates who have stayed on to help. Uh-huh. Um, but also I, have, I do have people who help me. Um, I okay. have one of my closest friends. Uh, Volva, who he is here, um, okay. and so he actually, uh, him and I, we kind of, we, we kind of split the weight, we kind of share the weight of, of the orphanage, and so actually, it, it's really good to have people here who can, you know, can help. That's um, we also we have we have we have some staff. Well, okay, we have we have one lady <laughs> that she works as a nanny, and then um, we have, like I said, two of the graduates who have stayed on to help. So they help either as nannies or wherever else they, they need to help. It could be cooking or, you know, other things, taking the kids to school uh, close by. And, and they're graduates as in they, they kind of aged out of the program or they've just gotten older. Obviously, if they, they kind of grew up with you guys, then they, that's kind of like family. So they've just kind of stayed yeah, exactly. on to help. So our orphanage actually is it's a family style orphanage, um, which, which makes us really standout from the, the typical style of orphanage you will find in Kyrgyzstan. In Kyrgyzstan, the government-owned orphanages, once a child reaches 16 or 17, they give them a small amount of money. I don't remember now how much it was, but it's not even like $50. And they're like, here you go, go start your life. And they literally will kick them out of the orphanage. Well, what is a young girl or a young man going to do? You know, Turn to crime, and, yeah. And so it's literally creating criminals, you know, and prostitutes because they don't have, they obviously don't have family. That's why they're in an orphanage, you know, and yeah. they don't have any, any means to stand on their own legs. And so our orphanage is a, it's a family style orphanage. Um, the children, after they finish high school, they're not required to leave the home. 
they, we require that they either further their, their education. Uh, we've sent several of our children to universities. Um, or if they don't want to, you know, if they want to study at a college or university, then um, they, we try to help them get on their feet, you know, find a job, you know, and actually phase out, you know, as, as they need to. Um, basically what a family does, you know, you know, your parents will say, hey, man, you're 17, you know, good luck, you know, get out. <laughs> And so, you know, that's the same thing we try to do here. And so two of the, two of the ladies, young ladies have stayed on with us and um, they've continued to help us, but also, you know, they're, they're starting their own lives, um, started studying, uh, started actually, one of them has started teaching English uh, in the capital city. And so basically getting them on their feet. That's excellent, man. That's such a, a, a noble pursuit that you guys are doing. And um, I imagine it's not easy to have all those. I know you have help, but heck, I have three boys at home and it can be a chaos. And so having that many kids that, uh, you're kind of a, really, you're kind of a father figure for all these kids, uh, in a sense, mm-hmm. that's a tall responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. It really can be. Maybe we'll have to do another, uh, interview with you about, uh, characteristics of a good father. I think we, we've already, yeah. we've already talked about that somewhat, but, uh, um, we'll have to touch back base with you on what, from your experiences, uh, makes a good father. Cause you have a unique experience in that you're fathering all these kids. Yeah. But, yeah that uh, might be interesting. Yeah. Might be interesting. Well, I was just going to say, um, kind of as a last, uh, question, as far as orphanage goes, how, how do these, um, how do these kids come to you? I mean, h- how do you, um, you know, find them or, or just different bad situations that they come to or, or assigned to from the, the, the government or how does that work? Okay. Um, we legally cannot just like take in children, you know, it's not like, Oh, you know, here's a, a poor child on the street. You know, why don't you come live with us? You know, legally we can't do that. We could actually get in trouble for doing that. And so all the children that are in our orphanage were placed there by social workers and it has to be like by a judge's order that they be placed in our home. Um, the different reasons for why they actually end up in our home um, can be either the completely orphaned, you know, their mother, their father have died, um, or it could be because of their parents abandoning them, um, be it for, you know, their drunks um, or for whatever reason that they've just chosen to give them up. Um, and also, it can be cases where the family just doesn't have money and they've, they've actually, you know, they've gone to the social worker and said, I, I can't, you know, feed my children. And they'll actually, they'll take the children, they'll put them like, for example, in our home. Um, we have one boy that he ended up in our orphanage. Um, basically he was just put on the bus. Um, he rode the bus all day and the bus driver at the end of the day was like, you know, what are you doing here? You know, where, where's your parents? And he didn't know where he was from. He didn't, you know, he couldn't give any information. He was like four or five years old. I think he was four years old then. And they asked him, said, so how'd you get in the bus? And he's like, well, you know, mama's boyfriend didn't like me. And so, you know, he put me on the bus and, you know, that's it. And so that's how he ended up in our orphanage simply wow. because, you know, somebody just put on the bus like, Hey, good luck, you know, get out of here. And he ended up in our orphanage because of that. That's so sad. But there's, there's a lot of different reasons why the, the children have ended up in, in our home. How, how old is that boy now? He's actually our oldest who, who is still considered a child in the orphanage. He's 18 years old now. Cool. That's, that's such a, a great story uh, about how these kids are in so much need and, you know, I think recently that there's been so much talk about kids that that have been caught up in sex trafficking and and these terrible things around the world and and are being abused. And so to hear a story about uh, you guys over there really doing good, and I know we we spoke earlier. You said that a lot of these kids aren't able to be uh, you know adopted out of the country, uh, and even some of them might have still relatives that just can't support them, so they have to stay in country. But still, that work that you guys are doing is so important, and I. Uh, I, I thank you and applaud you for doing that. Thank you. I appreciate that. One of our, uh, one of the questions that we always ask the people that we, we interview, um, is about their personal creed and, uh, a creed is really, it's a set of beliefs or aims that guide someone's actions. Uh, would you be able to briefly share a, a portion of your personal creed with us? Absolutely. So first of all, I want to honor Christ in my life through my life that's that's the main reason that's that's i'd probably say the greatest part of my creed um but also i want to be a man that people can depend on when something happens i want to be the person that they turn to and say hey i know you can take care of us i know that you can get us through this so i want to be prepared 
to protect my family and I want to be prepared to take care of my family no matter what happens um, throughout life. Um, that's, that's the main thing for me is to be the man God wants him to be and to be prepared for, for anything in this life. That's excellent. And I totally agree with that. And that's exactly uh, what I strive to be as well. Yeah, I liked what you said about kind of being uh, dependable and it's being that person for, you know, yourself and, and being capable and, and, you know, going back to the fit to survive, you know, fit and, and able, um, not just for myself, but for my wife or for my children or for, you know, the, the, the people that are, that are below um, or, or maybe under your stewardship. Um, so I, I really like that, Cody. I really like that, um, you know, just that that emphasis on on kind of following the, the will that the Lord has for you and, and trying to be the best person you can be. I think that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Cody, uh, what's your Instagram? Uh, give a shout-out to your Instagram. It's uh, fit2survive, to, to right? It is. It's fit2survive. Two was the number two, and then at the end, uh, there's an underscore. So, fit to survive underscore. Yeah, we'll put that uh, link in the show notes so that folks can uh, follow you and uh, check out some of the cool knife uh, knife creations that you have and some of your yeah, emergency preparedness kits. Uh, I know we didn't get a chance to talk about those, but they're really awesome. So, definitely, for our listeners out there, go check them out. Yeah, and, and for the rest of the listeners... Um, you can follow a Brothers Creed podcast as well on Instagram at a.brothers.creed. Um, and we uh, we really appreciate your time today, Cody, and, and some of the great stories that you were able to share with us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And let's build that creed together. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely.